Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. It was stories about the Roebuck, that the Roebuck lay off of Lewis, and uh, people knew it was out there and saw it was out there, and so any untoward things that happened, or uh, if somebody wanted to spin a good yarn of what happened last week, the Roebuck somehow figured in it. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Bill Manthorpe, talking about the destruction of the Cape Henlopen Lighthouse and the problems with bad history. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode was brought to you by Casemate, publishers of The Quaker and the Gamecock, Nathaniel Green, Thomas Sumter, and The Revolutionary War for the South by Andrew Waters. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we're joined by Journal of the American Revolution contributor, Bill Manthorpe. And we're talking about two issues. One that is very topical, the Kate Penelope Lighthouse, but the other in a much broader sense, uh, about the practice of good history. Today, Bill is going to use an interesting moment during the revolution, the destruction of a lighthouse, to illustrate the bigger problems as historians, that we run into all the time. One of them is the reliability of secondary sources and how the decisions of an author can reverberate throughout history for decades. We're going to see today, and his article highlights very well, of course you can read it at allthingsliberty.com, the website for the Journal of the American Revolution. We're going to see how the decision of one historian to either fabricate or move forward with, we'll say, scant evidence, uh, despite knowing the evidence was scant. We're going to see how that changes our understanding of an event, how it literally changes history. Because that one wrong turn will give other historians in the future other opportunities to make their own wrong turns to build off of. And before you know it, 230 years later... Uh, we're dealing with the aftermath. So it's a really important subject. It's a really important topic. It's something that all people interested in good history, if that is such a thing, should be interested in. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Bill Manthorpe. Bill Manthorpe, thank you for joining us. Oh, Brady, thanks for inviting me. It's quite an opportunity. Tell us about your background. Well, I think the most important thing to know about my background at the start is that I am neither an academic nor a historian. I'm actually a uh, retired intelligence professional, uh, 24 years on active duty and another 16 uh, with the Navy as a senior civilian. And uh, then after that, uh, some some teaching in quite quite opposite fields, uh, leadership and management for another 15 years or so. So uh, 
historical research and writing is not uh, initially my forte. But uh, as an intelligence professional, your job is to collect information from whatever sources are available, either primary or secondary, and then analyze them and, and provide it in writing or in presentations to senior officials. And really the objective of that is, uh, or the criteria for that, is that uh, you never uh, credit any information unless it's from a primary source or perhaps uh, two reliable, independent uh, secondary sources. Other than that, uh, you, you've got to be very skeptical about things you read uh, or hear because they are often passed down from one person to another and, and corrupted along the way or perhaps intentionally provided uh, inaccurately. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, uh, this was the, the most recent article was on uh, the Cape Henlopen Lighthouse in, uh, during the Revolutionary War. Uh, actually, my what got me involved in both of those topics was uh, I have been researching about uh, Lewis, uh, Delaware, during the Revolutionary War, and mainly because uh, Jacob Jones, who was a hero of the War of 1812, uh, about which people know very little because there's very little information out there. He was not a writer and a uh, keeper of documents and such. Uh, his, there's no fund of his letters or his, uh, his documents available. And uh, there is nothing, uh, only one primary source on his youth. But he grew up in Lewis, Delaware during the Revolutionary War. And so uh, if you know the events of the Revolutionary War, you can pretty well understand why a young boy growing up from six years old to 16 with those events going on around him would, would become a naval officer. And, that's, and so I've been researching the, the, what went on in Rehoboth uh, 100, Lewis, Delaware, during the Revolutionary War. Tell us about the strategic importance of Lewis, Delaware. Well, Lewis was an outpost on the front lines of the war because it was the uh, the at the head of Delaware Bay and Delaware River, which led right to Philadelphia, and so it was the uh, warning station for f first of all the uh, the Pennsylvania Committee of Safety, and after that the uh, Congress. Uh, for any activity that seemed to threaten the city. And, and uh, before the war started, uh, the senior pilot in Lewis, Henry Fisher, who was quite an outstanding patriot, uh, was given the, the uh, charge to establish a warning station at Lewis in the lighthouse. And then uh, he f created 13 other warning stations with uh, horses and boats and uh, sometimes cannons to get the word of what the British might be doing uh, at the bay, at the head of the bay, uh, up to Philadelphia. Usually it took about a day and a half to get his messages up there, but they were the first warning that uh, 
the Congress would have that uh, any there was any threat to them, and it would get there before the the threat itself would get there in in sailing ships up the up the channel in those days. This is a story about a lighthouse. It's also a story about problems in history. Uh, but let's talk about lighthouses for a minute. How would a lighthouse have been used in the 18th century? Well, this lighthouse particularly, uh, there was no reliable charts of the Delaware Bay until uh, 1756 when Joshua Fisher, no relation to Henry, in fact, a, a Quaker, uh, provided on his own, his, with his own information and his own, uh, his own finances, the first reliable chart of Delaware Bay. And then after that chart was produced, uh, there was a significant increase in, sh- uh, in shipping to Philadelphia because uh, now uh, it, it, uh, ships could, larger ships and uh, ships with, more, with less knowledgeable uh, captains could get up there, and and the pilots who were at Lewis, who would pilot the ships up, uh, had a reliable source on which to do their work. Uh, as soon as that chart was done, which was uh, uh, seventeen fifty, the first one was done in seventeen fifty six. But uh, then the the, uh, the uh, merchants of Philadelphia increased the amount of shipping they were doing. In fact, Joshua Fisher himself had two ships, and. Uh, it then became quite important that you have some way to find where that chart began, find out where the, the end of the channel was, and, and then mark that channel with, uh, with uh, buoys and, and other things. And all of that marking of the channel would be done from a, a common point, a central point, and that meant you had to have something, and that something became the lighthouse. Uh, the merchants of Philadelphia... Uh, originally collected subscriptions or sold subscriptions and collected the money and built that lighthouse, uh, which which finally opened in 1769 uh, on their own. It didn't it wasn't get gotten turned over to the federal government until uh, later uh, at the, near the end of the war. Talk about the Cape Henlopen Lighthouse. What was some of its interesting history? Well, as I as I said, it was uh, it was built in 1769 uh, based on subscriptions from the merchants of Philadelphia, and uh, it was built on a on a uh, high dune overlooking the Atlantic, and then uh, the uh, the channel was marked with buoys, and then you could have uh, piloting directions, which were which were written uh, and and sold. Uh, by by various people, but uh, you could and all the uh, directions were based on that lighthouse. Now it had kind of an unremarkable future uh, uh, history until the the time it was burned, uh, and then after that it uh, it stood for many years without much problem uh, until 1926. Now the the the, the beach w- was continually eroding. And by 1926, it was on the very edge of the dune, and in that year, it collapsed uh, into the sea. And now the position of the lighthouse is about, oh, perhaps a quarter mile off the off the coast. But uh, it, in terms of history, it, it didn't have much remarkable going on around it, uh, 
other than serving as a beacon for ships coming into the bay for many years. And of course, uh, if you if you wanted to talk about its uh, its history from the point of view of what it saw, uh, you know, it, it uh, saw the saw the uh, not only the uh, blockade of of uh, Delaware Bay during the Revolution, but it saw the blockade of Delaware Bay and the shelling of Lewis during the War of 1812, and then it uh, it uh, saw the tremendous amount of uh, of shipping from Philadelphia during World War One and World War Two, and then uh, it observed all the uh, submarine attacks that occurred off the coast during both World War One and World War Two. So, as far as history of its own, it had very little. But as far as history, which an observer or the lighthouse itself might have uh, have observed, it had quite a history. What was the Roebuck, and what is the legend that surrounds it? Well, the Roebuck was a 44-gun ship uh, of the British Navy. It was uh, captained by Captain Andrew Snape Hammond, and uh, he was the leader of a blockading force for Delaware Bay. Uh, They were originally based in Chesapeake Bay and uh, moved up after the the problems with Norfolk, moved up to to Delaware Bay. And uh, it lay off Delaware Bay, uh, beyond, you know, beyond the Cape, uh, originally arriving by itself with a small tender and attacking uh, as it arrives uh, in the first three or four days that it arrived, uh, six unsuspecting ships going in and out, capturing them and and uh, offloading the cargo that they desired and, and uh, uh, sending the, the crew ashore and then sinking the ships. And then after that, the, the blockading force grew. Usually, there was a frigate there with uh, with the Roebuck. Usually, uh, often, the, uh, the Liverpool, but sometimes the Camilla and sometimes the Preston. And then there were smaller ships like uh, uh, the eighteen gun ship uh, sloop Otter and uh, the ten uh, gun sloop Edward, for example. Uh, those kind of ships. And what would happen is the uh, the Roebuck or, and its frigate would lie offshore, and as the ship was arriving, uh, would sh- fire a cannon, get it to stop, or chase it and shell it until it did stop. And then the smaller ships would uh, would board and uh, take the cargo, etc. And as Continental ships uh, went out of the bay, they uh, would try to get out beyond the ver- behind the various shoals and such until they reached the ocean, and then they would run. Run for run for open water, and uh, the Roebuck and the uh, other ships would be chasing them, usually to no avail, but uh, would chase them and shell them as they as they went went off. The first time this happened was right after the uh, the Roebuck arrived, when uh, John Barry and the Lexington ran out behind uh, behind the the Overfall Shoals, which are the biggest shoals at the base of Delaware Bay. on the other side from the channel, on the Cape May side from the channel, and ran for sea and was followed by Roebuck and and Liverpool for some time until uh, they gave up the chase. And then he uh, captured Edward and brought it back in the same way he had gotten out, again being chased, but got his 
prize ship back into the bay. So that was the kind of activity that was going on uh, out there in Delaware Bay that my that I talk about my young my young hero was hearing about and later in his life uh, later in his years observing uh, going on in on the south at the end of Delaware Bay. You found some problems with the earliest histories of the subject, problems that have persisted to modern day. What did you find? Well, this event and many others that uh, happened uh, that I've run across during, uh, you know, studying the history. Now, the limited history of Lewis, but I, but uh, in some earlier work uh, uh, on a on my my second book, uh, I found a lot of errors as I was doing research too. People just accept the story that they heard from somebody else. Uh, as a, they, in, their, the original primary source may have been uh, uh, somebody, a first-hand person telling about what happened in those days, but it was folklore or it was a rumor or just gossip, and it wasn't really accurate. And that's accepted and reported in one source, and then that that source, which becomes a secondary source for somebody else, is just picked up and reported, and it goes from secondary source to secondary source, and and uh, eventually it becomes history or the truth. Uh, and it all started from something that, that should have been checked in the very first place and wasn't checked, and subsequently was adopted by others who never never bothered to check it. And uh, I haven't found this only in in history of the Revolutionary War, which I've been writing about recently, but I found it in the history of the, you know, the current history. I found it in, I, I wrote a long uh, piece on the history of, uh, of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and, and I found stories that were originally provided by somebody who allegedly was there or or knew about it and uh, gave a date and a, and a, and a quote or such that was adopted and, and in, in sources and then passed down the line. And again, again, became history. And I've written articles uh, debunking those kind of uh, 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 facts, quote unquote, uh, as well as revolutionary war. But it just recently I've, I've, since I've been writing on the Revolutionary War, I've found the same thing happening. And in this case, it was it was stories about the Roebuck that the Roebuck lay off of Lewis, and uh, people knew it was out there and saw it was out there. And so, any untoward things that happened, or uh, if somebody wanted to spin a good yarn of what happened last week, uh, the Roebuck somehow figured in it whether the Roebuck was actually there on that date or nearby on that date or the, the event really happened. Uh, it somehow some, somehow ended up over the years as becoming history, as you saw in that article. And not only that, but when there's a story of history, then people build on it and elaborate on it as the time goes on. This initial publication in question will lead to later misinformation and even embellishments. Uh, what followed this initial account and how did it change over time? Yes. Uh, well, in fact, people that you would think were reliable sources and it's, it's very hard to prove. First of all, 
the story was reported in in uh, the history of Delaware by Scharf, uh, Thomas Scharf, John Thomas Scharf, and that's a reliable source uh, for most history of Delaware. Uh, he he uses a lot of documents. He uses a lot of uh, firsthand accounts. He he uh, he uh, quotes them in his in his history. He he uh, he. Uh, provides the source. I mean, he, you know, he provides the actual uh, words of the source. And so he's a reliable source. And then uh, people tend to rely on him. But on occasion, he will, as in this case, uh, say something. And he only said about three or four words, uh, such as the Roebuck lay off the coast. And uh, at one time, a a party came in, in to the coast and did no damage to Lewis, but burned the lighthouse. Uh, that's essentially what he said, uh, and uh, that's it from Scharf. And so there's there is what 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 one would say was one reliable secondary source at least, uh, but there's no reliable other secondary source source that was independent of Scharf. And so you're left with one single source. Well, you know that source should be not particularly uh, relied upon in a final report unless you can find another secondary source or unless you can find a primary source that that credits it. And so uh, that didn't happen apparently by somebody back in those days. Uh, And uh, subsequent writers uh, have elaborated. And as you go along, you know, first of all, it... uh, it was elaborated a number of years later by someone else you would think would be a credible source who was a uh, a lighthouse keeper in the area, not at the Cape Henlopen Lighthouse, but what at one other of the lighthouses in the area. And he wrote uh, some information and elaborated on that story of Scharf. Well, now you've got two independent sources uh, who are you would think are reliable. One is a historian, the other is a lighthouse keeper, and you're writing about lighthouses, and you would think they'd know. So now it begins to look like it really is uh, something that happened. But again, uh, if you checked, (laughs) as I did, you would find that it really couldn't happen. And then the story gets bigger and bigger and bigger. uh, As people tell it over the years, it's like uh, the game of whispering in the ear to one person and then listening to what comes out of the other end of a line of people who whisper from one to the next. And so uh, by the time it got down to modern, uh, modern times and, and uh, John Beach, who wrote uh, a book on the lighthouses of Delaware Bay, uh, he picked up the story and wrote the story as he had it from a number of secondary sources, but he was at least uh, skeptical enough uh, to uh, check with the Navy department to see if, if uh, Roebuck's log in those days, the Naval documents of the American revolution weren't on the internet as they are now. And so he checked with the historian of the Navy department and found that no, there was no such report in the log of the Roebuck. Well, now, like any intelligence officer like myself, uh, you know, immediately uh, smells a problem. And uh, I, I knew John Beach. Uh, he uh, he's, uh, was only slightly older than I am, and, and uh, 
uh, I knew him uh, personally, and uh, we sat and talked, and, and talking about the subject got me interested in digging further into the issue, and then becomes the article in which I checked more easily because the sources are online now, many of them. Uh, it was easy to check and find out that indeed, no, uh, it, it, it couldn't have been the Roebuck, and if you check even further, it couldn't have been any other British ship. What did your research reveal about this issue? You know, the story is the British burned it. Well, obviously, uh, they didn't. Now, I can't, uh, I mean, I can prove that they didn't, uh, to my satisfaction anyway. There were no British ships in the area or possibly in the area. But uh, that means that somebody else must have burned it, and I can't prove either way there. But it's reasonable to believe that uh, the that Henry Fisher, uh, it was the first stop on his on his warning system to Philadelphia and uh, it burned the day after the British captured uh, what has become known as Fort Mifflin and occupied Philadelphia or had occupied Philadelphia and captured Fort Mifflin which meant that they could run their supply ships into Philadelphia and so Henry Fisher no longer needed the lighthouse and the British it would have been very useful to the British to have the lighthouse and so to my to my analysis, uh, Henry Fisher was the most likely person to have burned it. Uh, that could have been either accidentally or on purpose. He may have had his militia, who was based at the light, lighthouse, uh, go up and take the light out and try to turn the light out. And, of course, they may have dropped some oil and a spark or something may have burned the, the wooden steps. Or he may have just told them to, to burn the wooden steps so the British couldn't go up and relight it. So, uh, you know, that's that's the result of, of what I think happened. Uh, but I don't say that's, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't say that's the truth unless I can find uh, a document from Henry Fisher or someone else in Lewis saying that's what we were told to do or that's what I told them to do. And, of course, uh, as I point out in the article, the, uh, the uh, commissioners of the lighthouse in those days uh, had already said anybody who burns the lighthouse is going to be in, in big legal trouble with us. And so uh, no reason for Henry Fisher to admit doing it and, and no reason for Mrs. Hitchcock, the lighthouse keeper, to admit that uh, it was done while she was the keeper. So uh, they didn't report it. And perhaps they even started this story that Har that Scharf heard as a cover story for their own uh, activities, so that uh, nobody came looking for them legally, as uh, you know, for for punishment for having burned the lighthouse. What lessons should historians take from a study of this affair? Well, just like they tell a carpenter or anything else, anybody else who's working on, on a project, uh, 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 measure twice and cut once. Uh, always look for uh, a documentary, uh, a reliable firsthand uh, source. And if you can't find that, uh, if you're going to rely on a secondary source, even someone you consider to be a reliable uh, secondary source, check on them. You should have... You should have, really, two sources. 
before you credit something as a fact. Uh, and even then, you've got to be a little wary. Uh, but because uh, the two sources you have, all, although they say something about that that event or that person, uh, they may differ somewhat uh, somewhat in what they say or how reliable they are, how close they are to that event or that person. But, you know, just check and then check again and then check again before you credit it as a, a reliable fact that you're going to put in your, in your historical report. Or if you don't, uh, then you've got to put in uh, your, some, some part of your analysis, like uh, it, it most likely happened or it possibly, probably could have, would have, should have. And those adverbs, of course, the attachment of those adverbs throughout your story uh, ruin ruin the smooth reading of reading and it's uh it's not always uh you know a, a writer doesn't want to fill up his writing with all those adverbs so uh it depends on what you're writing if you're writing history then you have to put those things in if you're writing a popular history, I mean, if you're writing an academic history for other historians to rely upon as a secondary source, for example, then you've got to put uh, those adverbs in and create an endnote which explains why you put those adverbs in. I only had one source or the source said this and another source said that and I can't resolve the issue or whatever. Uh, now, if you're writing popular history, you know, you don't want to put those adverbs in and so uh, to, to ruin the smooth writing that you're doing. And so uh, uh, it, you've got a dilemma and, uh, you know, I certainly can't resolve it for you. In fact, that's my problem with, with uh, my history of Jacob Jones as a young man in the revolution. In Lewis, we know absolutely nothing. Uh, there is only one firsthand observation of him at that time and it's by an, an anonymous source it's in an article uh, by an anonymous source probably the person who observed him uh, giving a couple of lines on his his education but beyond that there's there's very little to know and so i'd like to write this for some people for you know the local residents here uh, to uh, read and understand. And to do that, I either have to put a uh, a caveat at the beginning, uh, which is what I probably will end up doing, saying that uh, I really can't uh, document his history, but this is what I think may, could have, would have, plausibly may have happened. And uh, I've uh, and I'm in, in that popular writing, I probably won't even attach end notes. And I'll say, so you just have to make up your own mind. Uh, on the other hand, I, I have already uh, a 37 page, 350 end note uh, draft for myself, research draft uh, on the story. And uh, for academics that may end up someday as a, as a, uh, uh, a young hi a history of his youth, which would be then full of end notes and, and uh, without all those qualifications or only those qualifications where I, I needed them. So it's a matter of what 
who you're writing for and what you're writing. But uh, if for historians, you know, is your secondary source if you're looking at something and it turns out to be somebody writing for popular readership uh, with very few endnotes or no endnotes, then uh, you have to be even more suspicious of using that information if you're writing an academic, uh, fully uh, uh, credible uh, story of the situation. And I read, <laughs> I read lots of, I read lots of, uh, in currently reading lots of history books on the Revolutionary War, and uh, I, I love the book, and I look at it, and I think, yeah, but you don't tell me how you know that, and uh, I'm a little leery about that. Bill Manthorpe, thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Brady. Uh, it's uh, I enjoy talking about and thinking about these kind of situations, so it was a nice opportunity. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.